Before the show starts, I just want to give a shout out to another show that I make called The Family Tree, which is in this week reaching the end of its first season. It's a very strange show. It's a kind of it starts off as a mystery show. It goes to all sorts of different places. It plays with the idea of fact and fiction and it's a magical realist podcast drama about identity change and belief really um i really want to recommend it just because the season is ending doesn't mean that the story isn't there for you to experience from the beginning without any spoilers if you go to the family tree website or you go to itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from you can get the family tree and if you start in episode one then you can experience the entire journey and the christmas season is coming up so that means people will have lots of time traveling they'll have maybe more time of their own that they can do their own kinds of things with and so why not listen to the family tree during this season and if you do listen to that story that me and my partner jen and the performers and artists and musicians involved in the project have made for you reach out and let me know what you think reach out and let us know what you think we're on facebook at the family tree we're on twitter at family tree pod and i'm on twitter at goosefat 101 now also before today's episode starts a couple of items of business first of all it's a long episode which some of you may be like yeah brilliant i love a long episode that's how i like to listen to my conversations and others of you might be like whoa i don't like long i don't fancy listening for a long time or maybe i like my podcast to fit my commute and my commute is half an hour or an hour so where does this hour and 50 minutes fit into and all I can say to you is the pause button is your friend you can stop this episode at any point you can listen to it in five pieces you can listen to it in two pieces you can listen to it all in one go if you really really want to you can listen to it and then listen to it all again from start to finish you have control that is what podcasts are about they're about allowing you the audience and me the creator to have control over the podcast over the experience and you get to choose that and so if you're someone who doesn't like a long podcast listen to this in installments I still recommend you listening to it because it's a really great conversation with a a really interesting man in terms of the content I want to give you the heads up that this conversation talks about some pretty extreme and complicated parts of human existence so within this conversation we touch on homelessness we touch on drug addiction we touch on having illnesses liver failure strokes those kinds of experiences being in a coma And in particular, I'd really like to signpost that we talk about child abuse and child sexual abuse within this conversation. And when we talk about that, there is an element of descriptiveness in what is said. There aren't like full accounts and descriptions of sexual abuse experiences. But definitely, if you've experienced child sexual abuse, you should be aware going in that the kinds of words that are used may bring back flashbacks to those experiences or may trigger you. I think it's always hard to give trigger warnings because you don't know exactly what someone's triggers are. For me, 
in my experiences in my life, one of the things that triggers me is Christmas and Christmas does not come with a trigger warning. People don't warn you about it. So in life, it's very hard to fully avoid these things. But I think where we can signpost things and give people informed choice about what they're listening to or experiencing or what they're going to see, it's a responsibility for people like me to think about that sort of stuff. So I really would like to give that strong, hard warning. But at the same time, I don't want to imply that this conversation is completely kind of within darkness. It touches on lots of dark things, but it's it's not a conversation, I don't think, that's pure darkness. There's lots of lightness. There's lots of other topics that are in, weaved within. There's politics. There's storytelling. There's friendship. There are all kinds of parts of this conversation, just as there are all kinds of parts to this person. And I don't want this conversation to be defined by child sexual abuse any more than I would like the person I'm talking to to be defined by one experience. So with all that in mind, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I think it's a really good one. And if you want further listening, all of Radcliffe's other appearances are available on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed and I'll link to them in the show notes uh so it's recording now um i'll probably move it around uh to get better levels and stuff like that but i'm going to keep it relatively loose because uh, this is a quite a, a I like my bowels <laughs> this is quite a controlled space this room so there's not too much background sound to worry about um and you're quite well you don't speak quite as loudly as you used to, but you still speak pretty loudly, uh, so I think we'll be fine. I want to be heard, Dave, you know this. You do, indeed. But I have learnt that the quieter you speak, the more attention you draw. This is true. Funny enough. Well, there's a, there's well, they talk about, there's that great saying, isn't there, that uh, money shouts, wealth whispers. Right. And whether that is in, in, in cash terms or in spiritual terms. I don't well, which is interesting, because certainly for most of your life you've been a shouter. Yes, uh, I certainly Which have. probably says something from that. From that. I think now I'm in the, in the whimpering camp. <laughs> right. Having had a lot, not valued it and wasted it, you've, I now have nothing and value it. It's bizarre. It, you've, you've been all around the houses and will we'll, people who... Right, let's, let, so I'll start the show as I normally do. Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting even better acquainted with Radcliffe. Hello, Radcliffe. Hello, Dave. Yeah, so we were just sort of starting to get into it even before I'd introduced you. Um, but this is your third appearance on this show. I mean, the first two appearances was, was one. It was split into two parts because we had a very long conversation. I seem to be able to resist the edits quite well, yes. Well, I didn't want to edit any of it out. And actually, sometimes I've put out really long episodes, um, but I, I just felt like it worked very well as a two-parter, that one. I was very comfortable. I remember it, it was a good experience, actually, and... Um... I had an amazing different sort of section of people. There were my direct contemporaries. There were, funnily enough, sort of peers of my, my kids' you know, generation who'd heard, who'd gone on and heard it, and they've sort of met me and then been interested to sort of uh, find out more about who is this guy? You know, he's sort of a bit larger than life or whatever, a bit colourful. Um, and so some of the feedback that I had from our first two episodes was 
was really intriguing and, and, and very engaging across from, from teenagers up to, you know, octogenarians. Right. So I kind of like that, that, that you, obviously your following or your audience seems to me to include a really wide section of society. Which I think is to, to your credit. Well, I hope that's true, yeah. I, I'd like that to be true. That's kind of what this show is about, is trying to connect all of those different people within society and make us see how we're similar and how we're different. Absolutely. I think looking for... Yeah, looking... You're very good at... Um, you use that expression, the common touch. It's not that. It's being inclusive. You're a very inclusive. And the way you work, and I'm familiar with how you work and what you do, you're very inclusive, whereas I, by nature seem to be elitist or would certainly come across as that <laughs> well, the way I present a lot of people would dismiss me because they're like oh right privately educated middle class you know well, rich privileged upper, privilege, upper I mean, class, upper class yeah. you know whatever um, originally I mean you've been all around the class but I think I think I've yes I, I have rather like a, a bee collecting honey I think I've collected from flowers at every level of society that's right but you, the, the, I guess it, and it's interesting that you said nature you could almost say it's in your nurture that you that you, that you are what you are you were born into into a posi- position in society that normally works out really well for people although I've railed against it yes it hasn't one. worked out very well for you and that's no. been really knowing you has been really interesting to me to find out how um, as much as I kind of think of upper class people as as, as being a, a big part of the problem and I do think that upper class culture is a big part of the problem that we find ourselves in now um, it's it's easy to forget that the pub, that public schools and the posh families were also kind of, are also kind of places of abuse where children are forcibly oh, made yeah. into something that they didn't want to be and, oh, absolutely. and we've sort of we covered are, that a lot in our previous conversation. We've covered it before yeah. where, where, I mean I am a classic example of someone that was uh, educated in a manner uh, which effectively brutalised the human condition to such a degree that you could go out and run an empire that we no longer had, I might, uh, I might put in. Right. You know, and, and some of the stuff that happened to me at school, I mean, were that to happen today, the guys would get, you know, they'd get five years inside. Absolutely. I mean, but in those days, of course, they got about five grand a term, in, in, you know, paid for by my, my own family. Absolutely. For and which I've never forgiven them, and, and, and stay. the jury's still out. I, I don't think because it was the done thing. You know, I didn't want to be part of the done thing. I, I wanted to be considered. I don't think you owe your parents any form of forgiveness. If you find forgiveness and you want to have that, that's something for you. It's not necessary. I don't, I don't think that you should be expected to forgive your parents, myself. Although, you see, that's where, you know, I find that an interesting one. I shouldn't be expected to, and yet I feel that I have to make excuses. I defend them. Well, that's just seeing them as fully human beings. To, but, to, to ignore the reasons why people are the way they are is to kind of ignore the reality. Like It's like if I, I could just blame my, my mum, for example, or I can see the things that made my mum who she is, and then I get to decide if I want to forgive her or not. And I, I, I am in a place of forgiveness for her, but she has done lesser crimes, in my view, in some ways. Well, that is... You to judge other people's parents harshly when you've never sort of... I wasn't there. I've only heard your side of the story. Well, exactly. And so you're getting a perspective and my perspective is is you know and I, I, I can be quite honest about it um, I mean a classic example when uh, four years ago I had a stroke and I uh, was very ill um, and there was a terrifyingly sort of awkward moment where for about two months I was told not to go on a plane not to drive not to do stressful things not to go out partying not to take any drugs not to get drunk because I'd had what's called a transient ischemic attack 
and they say that everyone that has a major stroke tends to have these in the run-up to it. A lot of people don't know they've had that, and then they have the massive ones. So there was a sort of 8- to 12-week window where they say your risk of um, catastrophic stroke is, is you know, very high. And um, my family, obviously, were informed, and my mother was... I spoke to her, and she said, well, darling, you must come home. You know, cook some good country walks and home cooking. And I agreed with my girlfriend that we would go for the weekend. And the next day, my mother rang up and said, actually, darling, we've, uh, we've got a new dog arriving this weekend. It's a bit inconvenient. And that degree of, if you like, just casual, almost ambivalent neglect yeah. is, almost, is almost what I, what I think. Now, I may be oversensitive and I may not have developed a thick enough skin but it still matters to me. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in a way, I think it's easier for my for me to forgive my mum for a couple of reasons. In that, first of all, she didn't know what she was doing a lot of the time. She wasn't really aware of it. Like, she, she acted in emotional states, and then right. after she'd acted in that way, then she could... Then she could feel guilty, and that kind of guilt isn't is, was was also something I was expected to uh, deal with and manage mm-hmm. her guilt. But she did feel she was aware that she was doing bad things, but not at the time, and she couldn't control it and all of these things. But there was there was feeling there, there was mm. some perspective, there was love there. It was all fucked up and and, and messed I'm, around. I, right? I, well, I think we I think we have a similar take in that respect, in as much as with with the age, of course, my you know, now that I'm middle aged. <laughs> uh, man, um, perpetual teenager in my head, of course. But now that I'm a middle-aged, I do have a sort of a wiser, if you like, perspective that I'm sure they did the best that they felt. Although I'm not even convinced that's true. No, I'm not. When you, I, I'm when not convinced the that they, they, they did do the best. I don't think. I mean, perhaps I was uh, a little bit extra needy, or I was oversensitive. I'm not trying to disassociate my own responsibility or my own part. Well, you were a child, so. But, you but were how on earth does a child exactly? How on earth does a child, from that perspective, whose first gods, if you like, are, are your parents? I mean, the irony is that we are taught in our culture to to promulgate lies that are incredibly damaging. I mean, down to, as simple as the Father Christmas myth. Right. You know, that is a lie. Yeah. They promulgate this this idea that there is some sort of being that does this magical, wonderful thing. And then when you find out that's not true and that the world isn't as they presented it, they don't offer any um, band-aid to that. You're just left to cope with it. And that's, you know, part of growing up, perhaps. But I never felt um, that I was heard. And then, of course... Because I didn't feel heard, I then stopped presenting the real me. And by the age of sort of 11, 12, I became, as the psychologist would say, unreachable. But then I had been brutalised in a school system where it was perfectly okay to treat any outward display of nonconformity with violence with with uh, exclusion and uh, ultimately with with you know the the sanction of um, a big stick you know that you know I grew up 
knowing fear. Right. And I really did. And, and that was, was something, I mean, and if people listen back to our first conversation, that was something that also was a part of your home life as well. I mean, I think I once had an experience of uh, doing a child protection course and realising that all of the things on the, uh, on the under the emotional abuse kind of head, heading were all things that I'd experienced mm. in my childhood. And I was like, oh, fuck, yeah. I actually can, I have got a right to, to, to see some of this as kind of abusive. But, but I think that if you had that list, that would be filled, as would, you know, some of the physical abuse as well. Um, and so, you know, these days, how we would look at your childhood would be very, very different from how, how you will have been taught to look at your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So you've had to kind yeah. of like relearn how to see yourself as a, as a fully rounded that- human being. You've hit the nail on the head. That is, is I'm having to relearn. And this is not about blame, and we live in a very blame culture. I understand that. But it's about where my, my view of myself has been shaped or tempered by the way I was treated by others, effectively. Yeah. And there's that lovely maxim, isn't it, in life, you know, do unto others as you have done unto you. I wouldn't treat... Um, my children I didn't treat my children although I did offer them a broken home um, I didn't treat them in the same way that my certainly my parents uh, taught me or behaved towards me and my father my mother was his sort of advocate I mean, he very deliberately did not wish to uh, engage with his children he didn't want the responsibility and I think in a genuine desire to try and avoid what happened to him which caused his father um, who was very badly beaten up in the war um, and I think had had um, you know, debilitating brain damage from either a tumour or, or it might have been a war wound and I think my father felt terribly um, ashamed um, to bring people to his home and he felt very let down and I think he wanted to avoid us having that same experience but the very nature of his way of trying to avoid that created the very thing that right. he was trying to avoid the, in the essence place. of tragedies sadly like yes. the, 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 and you know I you know there's a reason that we're drawn to tragedy as a as a as a as human beings and why we enjoy those stories and why they resonate it's because you know so often our lives do fulfill those those pathways so many of us try to not be like I know the last and generation, then and to realize that we are actually the cliche yeah. that we through we our to actions be of trying to avoid yeah. it yeah. we end up fulfilling it in some way absolutely so, so, it, so it's 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 if it's not predetermined or destined then what the hell is it that right. creates the same old repetition and then if you look I mean the current zeitgeist uh, at the moment is this appalling litany of, of uh, child abuse um, and I too um, I, don't, I hate to use the word victim but I was you know at, at the age of um, you know single digit years old I was sent away from home to, to, to go and effectively be parented by my peer group but I was a bedwetter and um I remember my first night at boarding school. You know, I wet the bed. I was so terrified of being found out and teased and you know humiliated in front of my dorm or my peers. You know that I, I remember hiding, getting my sheets off the bed and then trying to find somewhere to hide them. You know, and this this teacher who lived at the school, he he found me. He understood my dilemma and he helped. And of course, he built up my trust and built it up over the period of about a year and um, not to put too fine a point on it then proceeded to brutally fuck all that trust out of me for about three years on and off and I was in so much 
turmoil. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know where to go. I mean, I was eight years old trying to hide the fact that I was bleeding, you know, from, from my... Um, we don't have to draw a picture. It, um, and any ambivalence I felt towards my own sexuality, which was challenged because I was sexualized so young, created all sorts of confusion. And I was, and then voraciously went to prove that I, how heterosexual I was by um, cutting a swathe, as it were. And I was advantaged with um, a fast mouth, not an, un, not an unattractive appearance. Right, but the, that had not served me well to be acute or pretty or whatever had, to my mind, put me in, in, in real danger. And I begged and begged not to be sent back to that school. I couldn't articulate why, but the fact that it wasn't enough that my every fibre wanted not to be sent there again didn't have any weight. Right. kind of alienated me from the, the people that should have been my support. I thought, they, well, they're not there. So I then became incredibly isolated and of course also having an adventurous spirit it was very easy to step from that isolation into bad company as it were right and so i mean a lot and we've covered a lot of this in yeah. our first two conversations yeah. we we haven't really kind of like looked i don't know if i can't remember if we've looked specifically at that at that sexual abuse experience uh, we may have had that in conversations off mic mm-hmm. um, but we may have touched on it and it's and it's certainly part of a whole pattern of different kinds of abuse that you had as a child and you would go on to become a a, 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 a drug user uh, somebody who ended up homeless and went to prison and all of these things can be heard uh, in previous conversations. Yeah, we've, we've kind of covered that. One yeah, thing absolutely. I would say uh, to you now um, is that if you don't like the word victim, there's another one available. Uh, people uh, define themselves who've been through those kind of experiences now. They, a lot of people use the word survivor um, rather than victim. And I find that having not had the same experience as you, but I have had kind of, I've been raped. Um, and like I find the word survivor a more comfortable fit to my 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 experience, um, and you have survived a lot of well, life. I, yeah, I have survived a lot of much things. the same as a, as a mollusk survives the tidal reaches of the sea going up and down. He doesn't right. thrive necessarily. No, that is true too. And I feel angry. No, you and you have a right to. I and still feel whatever very word angry. you want to use and however you want to feel about it is your right. I'm not really. I'm not. I'm not so much uncomfortable about talking about it. I, I, I get uncomfortable with the concept that people say you've got to get over it. Well, how the hell do you get over it? No, it was, you haven't got to get it, over it. It's a pillar of, you my, haven't got to get over of my life. It. You haven't got to get over it. And I don't know how to. And of course, everywhere you look, um, and I'm cynical enough to believe that the reason that the government cannot find anyone to lead this inquiry, they've had three or four different people who say they're going to do it, and then suddenly they can't do it. I'm utterly convinced that what happens behind the scenes is somebody says, well, you can't do it because you're going to find that Uncle Charlie or your brother or your sister or whatever is part of the problem. And I think the institutional nature of this kind of uh, uh, abuse, there's no other word for it, mm-hmm. is, is in, not only is it endemic, but it, 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 it is promulgated as much by the people that abhor it as the people that practice it because nobody wants to own the fact that the problem is real and that you could have done something about it when nobody did. And the Jimmy Savile situation is a classic case in point. People knew, yeah, no, even yeah. if only on an instinctive level. And I don't believe that's true. I think people knew a lot more than they, they let on. But, of course, everybody then just shuts down. And what is it they say, that wonderful saying, you know, 
for evil to prosper just requires good men to do nothing right. and I'm as guilty of that as the next man but I then had the situation where at a time when I might have taken the institution and the, the, the people involved in my own situation to court my brother was then chairman of the board of governors of the very institution so I would have been suing my own brother um, and the family dynamics in that scenario just do not bear uh, right. opening up. That's a different can of worms. Well, this is it. We're also there's so many things, there's so many barriers in people's way. Um, but I mean, it, you you know, you've you've got absolutely every right to not get over it. It's a thing that happened to you, and I hear you, and it's and it's fine. But so I resent also being defined by it. You're not defined. You know, by it. I, I don't wish to be defined. Well, by you're it. not defined by it. I mean, you, you know, it may feel like you are sometimes to you, but you. When I think of you, I don't think of that. Uh, I think of lots of things. Uh, you know, but the first things I think about you are very positive things. Uh, well, you know, you know, you know. Maybe in a small cat. Well, well, that's you know, that's fine. Uh, I don't mind being in a small category, but I, I am in that. I am in that category. I have great respect for you. Um, so the, the first question that I ask everybody, mm. <laughs> which doesn't normally come up, we, we've, gone, we've gone with the revelations well, first. We're, we're in there. Yeah, we're we're, we've in, yeah. done it now, yeah. and we don't have to we worry. We've got to go anywhere now, so that's um, good. But, but the, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? And I guess we've sort of touched on the fact that you've been on the show a couple of times. Yes. What the reason for that is we met through Spark London, which is a true storytelling night. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. We both started off telling stories. Now, at this point, we're both in the Spark London team. Yeah. For a lot of years, um, I've, you know, I've host, I still host the, the Hackney branch of, of Spark, uh, which is on the second Monday of every month, for quite a few years. I did the, did the Brixton, Brixton one in South London, which is on the third Monday That's of right. every month, uh, 7.30, in the Ritzy upstairs. I recommend it to anyone as the, one of the most engaging, entertaining, uh, downright good fun um, and informative nights that you will ever, ever, ever spend. Right. And I, I really love being part of the, if you like, the, the what I believe the original, the, the, our founder, uh, uh, Joanna Yates, when she first started Spark, I think she had a genuine desire to, to, to hear and, and sort of lap up other people's experience, which was great, in a format which challenges people on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy yeah. to get up and just tell it cold, you know. And right. We've had... I remember watching actors come and try and sort of do prepared pieces or, you know, stand-ups were sort of trying to work material. And they never really worked. And the ones that always got me and got the audience were the people that had the courage to reveal... It's about revelation, yeah. who they really were. And that, being touched, allowing yourself to be open to other people's experience from all walks of life and from all over the world, and it's the international flavour as well I enjoy, is is a privilege rather than, 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 than a job or, or, right. or a role. It was, it was I found, highly um, just, just engaging. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's, it's no mistake that we were first invited to, to tell stories. And I think the, the founders first sort of, you know, emailed their friends, hey, I'm doing this. And, you know, a few of us sort of wannabes kind of pitched up and rather nervously shuffled our feet and found that actually we probably would never have come across each other in a normal environment of work or social life. And yet, we probably have more informative and enriching uh, times and conversation um, because of that. And in fact, we've gone on to do other work. And although I became right. ill and couldn't do my Edinburgh show, you know, you were um, 
got to a situation where you're now producing or have helped me starting to produce some work of my own. That's right. I mean, I've, um, I've been a big fan of your stories for a long is really, time. It's really nice for and, me. You know, it was not. It was a couple of uh, a couple of uh, was it last Edinburgh? Well, no, it was the Edinburgh before. Now it will have been two years ago. Yeah. In fact, yeah. and. I was going up with a stand-up tragedy and my solo show, and I was going to produce your show too. Yeah. Um, we we did some, we got some pictures done. We we got I you standing in a skip with a top hat yeah, and tails. Absolutely. Um, and you know, we were we were going to produce your show, and then as we kind of came up towards Edinburgh, I started to sort of get warning signs yeah. that you were you were not quite. Things were not quite working out. I didn't know what was going on in your life. In so that I moment. was spinning. I was spinning. You, your instincts were absolutely spot on, and you were very politics, should we say? Uh, yeah, and, I can be a bit like uh, that. When it well, comes no, to but art. you were actually very instrumental in a way because the fact that I no longer, I was not in a in, in a condition where I could be relied on. Um, and I'd started to become very ill. Right. Although I didn't know I was ill. Right. And I made the fatal mistake of trying to self-medicate my way out of a, out of a problem. Yes. Which then exacerbated it to such a degree that uh, I um, I ended up. Funnily enough, it was just after one of uh, a Spark uh, show at the Wilderness Festival, um, and Spark do a late night slot there of storytelling, and um, I had the privilege of hosting it for a couple of years. And I'd done that show. I don't really remember it. I came back to London. I felt so ill, ill enough at last to go to the doctor and say, I feel a bit mouldy. And the doctor's first reaction was, oh, my God, I'm calling an ambulance. You're going to hospital now, which I thought was a bit over the top. And uh, within 24 hours, I had complete organ failure, shut down, and was in a coma. So I was in for two months uh, on life support. My family had come down and said their goodbyes. Ironically, having having said their goodbyes, they didn't have anything to say to me now. Um, but every, you know, I was not expected to live, and I did. Um, and I'm very, um, very grateful to an amazing team of of individuals, professionals, uh, both friends, um, and and um, the crew or the team, if you like, at Spark, who have been immensely supportive and. Uh, Inclusive of me, even though I wasn't able to to add anything for a, for a while, you know, I, I am struggling back to health. Well, I mean, I um, kick myself. It's been really nice, a lot, having though, you know, because in the run up to that, like you know, we I could see that you were ill, you were kind of bloated, I guess oh, is the word to yeah. use, and your skin was very yellow, and that's because your liver was failing, Tapping. which we now know. Yeah. But I knew you weren't very well. Um, and I remember you, you, you host, you did the warm up act for our pilot for Radio Four that we did. Oh yes, yes and yes, you yes. did an amazing, you did an amazing job. You did amazing stories. But as soon as you kind of you, you went on stage and you, you did your thing, you turned it on and you were yeah. brilliant. And then you came off and you just kind of like it's like a balloon just yeah, going like, out of the edge. And I remember seeing you that night, and that's the night I think that I said to you afterwards I think Edinburgh's not going to work I don't think you're, you're you know I can't imagine you you named the beast feeling named this beast. ill and being in Edinburgh and I just was so aware of how stressful Edinburgh is and it could be the making of you creatively and uh, a kind of bring you a bigger audience which you deserve I think but it wasn't worth the like it, it could also destroy you and also me because I would have been attached to you yeah. and it would have been an it interesting was, you, your, your judgement and a very difficult 
because we're now dealing with my pride, my ego, my own momentum, right. my own idea of what I was trying to do. And mine. I, I mean, and, I, um, I was devastated. I, I mean, in a way, relieved. It was. It was a sort yeah. of. You were very. Um, you were very cool. I have to say, it, it's not an easy situation to say to someone. I think we're going to have to to think again. And I knew you were right. Much as I didn't want to sort of own it and just put that marker down and right. say, let's... But I wish my instincts yeah. had been better than that because what I didn't realise is that you'd started using again. Yeah. Well, that was, of course, was, of course, part of... The, with me, that all goes with... The, you know, that goes in the hidden camp. Nobody's going to see that. Sure. The fact that I was, again, having to rely on, on some form of chemical... I found incredibly crushing to my self-esteem and my, my, my idea of self. And the idea that I was going to turn, um, promulgate a show and, 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 and develop my, my own storytelling and my own one-man show career on the back of having survived and sort of overcome not only wealth and privilege to achieve utter mediocrity and homelessness, of course, but also this sort of pernicious drug addiction. And the irony of that the only way I was going to be able to talk about my release from drug addiction was to again be addicted to drugs right. the, 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 the sort of you know what, what's that word that maybe a strip of just right uh, the, just the, the momentum of just spiralling down yeah. it, it just psychologically destroyed me and so when when I got the you know, kind of you, 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 although without actually naming the beast we both understood that it wasn't going to happen I I kind of went into the wilderness because I didn't know I didn't have a reason to be going, keep going, and I didn't know what to do. And I actually imploded. Yeah. And my, as you say, I had started using again, and I, I had started drinking and taking over-the-counter medications to such a degree that I killed my pancreas, rotted, you know, put a hole in my stomach. You could put a golf ball through, and. Uh, Ended up in a coma. And before that, you know, you had already done a lot of damage to your internal organs, yeah. so this is extra damage on top of damage. I mean, this is, yeah, exactly. So the the um, the first sort of stab, and I, bearing in mind I had, you know, a decade of being away from all of the madness and away from drink and away from any drug right. and completely sort of, you know, changed my life. To be going back into that, I couldn't own it because it meant that everything I stood for was a sham. Right, you've stood up on stage and told the story of how you've overcome your yeah. heroin addiction, how you've overcome your uh, prison experience and your homelessness, and yet there, you, there you were still drinking and, yeah. and going in that direction again. Thank you. Thank you. I totally can understand that. that was where... Um, so it was all part and part of it. It was devastating. I was still hiding it. I wasn't owning it to anybody. and uh, Not so much... Um, to hide it from myself I couldn't hide it from myself but the fear of what I was going to have to do in order to if you like validate the story again mm-hmm. was I was going to have to face starting that journey all over mm-hmm. again and there are there are no shortcuts I couldn't save my ass and my face at the same time right. and, and I had to make a decision and I was um, so reluctant to if you like own the fact that I, I, I had tripped up again or I'd gone down a, you know, that dark, blind alley, which I know so well. Um, and while on the face of it I might have been styling it out to a casual acquaintance, I had to isolate myself more and more from the people that knew me because they would spot that something was, was off-key. And in fact, I guess I was really lucky that I became physically so ill because um, that it, it, I was forced to address the fact that, you know, 
again, um, addiction had reared its ugly head and I was losing. Right. And over fist. I mean, when I saw you that night where you, you did the warm-up act for Spark, you know, you were, you're, a, you're a tall man. And as you've alluded to, you, you are a handsome man, too. Oh, I'm, I'm um, in the right lighting, of course. Well, the right lighting. indeed, but you were, at your, you were very much a bigger man than the man I'd met. Like, physically, you were kind of like... It was almost like your skin was bubbling up underneath yes. you, and it was like... It felt like it was going to split. Pop. Yes, it was like you were gonna, tear, and I was going to pour right. it. Yeah. And, and so that was... The, that I saw you then, yeah. and then... Edinburgh happened and I was in Edinburgh when you went into your coma so I couldn't I couldn't go to the hospital and see you so the next time I saw you was when you came back to Spark and told the story of your coma and you had physically transformed like you you, you're you're thinner than I've ever known you now well when when I went into hospital I was 16 stone and as I sit here talking to you now I'm between nine and nine and a half stone right I mean, it so felt, I'm half the man it I was. felt to me like you were shorter. Like one of the things I always know of you is you're so tall, and I think somehow you've lost a, a little bit of of your height, which is no, that's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, and you look like David Bowie now, which is which. You know, is, you know, every cloud has a sort of you know, yeah, it really does. I, I can live with that. So you've got a different kind of appeal than you used to have. Um, but you've still got appeal. Uh, you're still cursed you're with very, that. You're very gracious. Well, it's a curse as much as, you know, as you've said, it's yes. a curse as much as it's a, a good thing, but it's a thing. And it's but a, I can hide, you see. You're very... Um, it's, it's actually quite comfortable having this discussion because you have seen me in various, if you like, guises or, or stages of me. And while you might not have been able to put your finger on it, you watched the transition yeah. from someone who had overcome... To someone who was, whose public persona was the man that had overcome, but the only way I was able to con- keep doing that person was to have again succumbed. I mean, the the, the sort of Mobius strip of shame and, and, and dereliction that, that 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 created, bloody nearly killed me. And, well, it, and, and that that pride or that that attachment to how others must see me, right, is so powerful. And and when yeah. when you went into that coma. What happened then? Like, what was that experience like? I remember holding my eldest son's hand, and I was with my best friend and my eldest son lying on the bed, and they mentioned that I had um, uh, serious damage to my pancreas. And I, trying to quip to the last, was talking about, no, 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 it's King's Cross, not St. Pancreas. <laughs> some nonsense like that um, and then the doctor just said I, I said that sort of give it to me straight doc in some sort of you know braggadocio voice <laughs> holding my eldest son's I hand imagine this so and they, my best friend and my eldest son then heard the doctor telling me that the amount of drink and the amount of uh, pills I was taking was, was, was you know I was very lucky to be alive and I was dangerously ill and this was the first that my anyone knew that I was actually using again, and they had the fear of my old son. Obviously, you know, you can imagine, poor guy, his father lying there, and all his bullshit is being exposed by the reality of this man is is on death's door, in a hospital, um, within twelve hours from that doctor, I was on life support in a coma. Um, and I don't really feel that I've fully come back to the world since, actually. It's a really interesting thing. I've just had this real 
flashback of lying on that bed and looking at my eldest son and him seeing for the first time that I, his dad, you know, his recovering addict father, was failing and had let it, you know, had let, had let let himself go again. I found that unbelievably distressing, and I don't really remember the line of crossing or going into unconsciousness or not, but I do remember so many strange things in right. the coma state. Um, but I, I was also aware that he came every single day and there were times that they said he's probably not going to make tomorrow so they all had a very tangible physical time with me of which I had no recollection because I was this helpless non-entity of nothing I was just a ball of life clinging, you know, clinging to the physical world and yet the other side of that I had memories that that are so powerful, or ideas, or, or they feel like memories. For example, I, I can, I can imagine, I can taste it now. The the the, the taste of the mustard on a pastrami and rye sandwich in a, in a deli on West Fifty Fourth Street in New York. I've never been to America. How could I possibly have that? And yet, it's as powerful as memories of going to a circus when I was a child or a particular Christmas present I enjoyed receiving. I mean, it's so powerful. I also have equally strong memories of running with a sort of 15th, 14th century Chinese warlord. Now, whether or not our souls come round again or not is is a discussion I I enjoy having. What I do know (laughs) is that I have got firm memories or experiences in what I believe are my memory banks, which I, in this life have no way of, of creating. Right. Now, that all sounds way out there. Um, might sound a little bit hallucinogenic. And I'm used to hallucinogenics. But what I'm not used to is, is the concept of I don't really know which who is me, what, how much of a person is me, and how much of me is actually me. You know, my physical body, I think I died three times, they said once with uh, septicemia and twice with pneumonia, which is very common when you're in a coma, you get these infections. Um, and I was you know, very, very ill. And there was one night, definitely one night, and I've spoken to uh, my mother about it, who's a very staunch Christian who runs the Al-Qaeda wing of the Mother's Union up there in Carlisle, um, <laughs> believed that uh, there were angels stood over my bed and I believed that I was in a place which was very yellow and warm and welcoming and I could stay. I knew I could stay, but I also remember my mantra was, I've got to get back to the kids, I've got to get back to the kids. And in my psyche, clawing my way through a sort of almost fire-glazed, sort of like the smooth walls of a well that's had so much heat it's made it glassy and rubbing my fingers to the stubs of bones claw my way to the top and coming back out into the in, in, into the now into the world um, and I think I was given a choice I really do I mean people talk about near death experiences or what have you I have such a clear memory of choosing to go back I didn't want to leave the children that's what I remember um whether or not I was at the transition, whether it's St. Peter, whether it was angels, I don't know. 
what I do know is that I was given a choice and I made a choice and I'm happy with that choice but uh, by the same token it means that I've had to face up to my demons again and admit to the world and myself that I struggle just to be alive you know, I'm still very unwell I still struggle with um, I came out of the coma on a morphine script <laughs> spent my life trying to get these sort of drugs given to me now they are, I don't want them <laughs> you know, right, that's uh, a painful irony it's a right yeah, it is a painful irony and I'm <sighs> in a very very difficult place for, for well I think for anybody but especially for me because the veracity or the validity of my act for want of a better word in terms of my public speaking and my storytelling really was from a perspective of someone who had touched the abominable and come back and was able to from the comfort of one sitting room in an armchair take people to, to, to the edge and show them what it's really like right. but I I'm mean, now back there I mean that was the narrative that we were going to do in your solo Absolutely. show you know I was you know, going through with you the idea of calling it travels in class and having Absolutely. you you kind of take us on this journey because you've been like we're, no, we're, you've been very yeah. you were really helpful in, in shaping a structure into what we what you know, how I was going to use right. my experience. In I mean, we're sitting in your house oh, really? now, and that's social housing. You are currently on the so it wasn't supposed to be a happy ending to your to your show in a way. In a, what it was going to be is like you're now looking at the Tory government and what can you see about well coalition government probably back then, but like well. You, well, the irony is not lost to me that our Home Secretary, uh, the last time I was headhunted to a job was, was, was by our current Home Secretary, Amber Rudd. I worked with her. Um, my God, so funny. So, you know, I'm as much a part of the establishment as anybody. Yeah, um, well, they've turned their back on you, though. I mean, that's Oh, the thing, yeah, they're not taking my calls at the moment. I don't think that, you know, if only... If only the you see, I should be their drugs are. Well, absolutely. Yeah, if, if there was anyone from, from the, the upper class kind of division of this country who I'd like to be shaping policy it'll be you because you've had actual experience of being a drug user an addict and uh, you can can shape that policy in a humane way I actually you know I I, I totally agree with you Uh, (laughs) I mean on on a serious note I would be very willing to to uh, you know my because I'm not only do I understand the bigger picture um, having been as you say an active participant of the dark side I have also got tangible experience of the other side and I'm yet again in a position where okay so I've, I've, I've reverted to type I am here not planning to continue the rest of my life in a downward spiral you know I am um, again reaccessing services and what's so interesting is the shift and the change of how the government is treating addiction today as to how they were doing it uh, 10, 12 years ago when I, when I last engaged. It's changed and the government has you know, put a line in the sand. The government is not interested in abstinence-based recovery. They don't seek that as an outcome. The government tangibly now just wants to have people on a maintenance dose of some other drug or some kind of uh, um, uh, substitute they can tick the box and say, yeah, we're, we're dealing with that problem. They're not interested. You know, I've tried to explain to them that offering me a methadone script is just a different deck chair on the Titanic. You know, I'm already on a morphine script. I don't need another drug to treat my drug addiction. That's insane. What I want is the support to be able to go back into an abstinence-free world. The problem I'm going to face, and they're, they're all very concerned about, as am I, 
is that I've made myself so physically unwell that they are suggesting it may be impossible for me to live without serious pain control. My understanding of pancreatitis is that on the pain scale it, it ranks above childbirth, apparently. Um, having never given birth to a child, I, I, I'm not in a position... Um, to judge, but I, I already know I want the epidural. I mean, the thing is, the, the difference is that childbirth is a, is, a, is, a, is a single moment. Is a moment, yeah. Of and this is chronic. Immense pain, whereas you're always in pain yeah. from this thing. And that is, that is my dilemma now. So I, I am now again living on a maintenance programme of the very stuff that bloody near killed me in the first place. So the ultimate irony is that in order to survive, to tell my tale, I have to go back into the dragon's den. So. Well, it's a complicated position to be in. Speaking of dependency, I'm going to pause it while I uh, while I roll a cigarette for myself. Very sensible. <laughs> Very sensible. I think it's a good moment. I've now got uh, I've now now got the drug that I depend on. Um, you're among friends. Well, yeah, you're I mean, friends, the, the, enjoy. You know, yeah. as a, as a you're a recovering addict from many addictions. Uh, Tobacco is is the the one that you you. I have several several devices. I I have real tobacco. Um, I have electronic cigarettes. <laughs> that I'm trying to become familiar with. All I all I find is that become extra things that I become dependent on. Rather than reducing, I just seem to increase. Yeah, I was like that at school with the Nicorette. I, I always used to... In fact, I got in trouble because I would go into English class and I would sit there puffing on the uh, Nicorette in the in the front row, like, kind of, f- f- you know, putting my thumb up at the establishment, like, you can't stop me, this is... I'm just sucking on a thing. Uh, and the teachers didn't, didn't agree. They, they didn't, didn't think I should be allowed to just sit there sucking things. I mean, it's a complicated thing because, you know, you've had these experiences that are kind of out-of-body experiences, like a kind of uh, spiritual in a way, right? Yeah, I would certainly um, certainly call them spiritual. And yes. yet, at the same time, you kind of referred to your mum uh, being a kind of Christian and that being something that you kind of have sort of reacted against to a certain extent. And, you, you know, we've said pri- privately before we started recording, we were talking and you sort of said that your problem with the, the 12-step recovery plan is exactly what my problem would be, is that you have to g- believe yeah. uh, for that to be effective. I mean, it's not... There, there are people who manage to sort of adapt it to a kind of humanist kind of... Which I... Which of, I yeah, and, and the, the, the basic precept, just for, for simplicity of this discussion is you require some kind of spiritual awakening and some understanding and belief in a God. Now, I don't believe that any rational, sane thinking person can, in good conscience, believe in a God. And if you do, I think you're either lying or you're just pig-ignorant. Because I'm a logical positivist or a creationist, whatever, you know, I believe in... In, in the physics of, of, of the universe and yes I believe there are powers greater than me look at gravity look at various things and I don't uh, but is there a sentient being controlling it and can I have a one to one discussion well at best mine would be on the sort of pay as you go order of the mobile phone contract um, I don't believe in God I don't believe there is such a thing. I, I believe it's highly arrogant. So do you believe in a soul though because you're experiencing Yes. Right. Now, okay. But that's not the same thing at all. I don't require, for my belief, there to be a God to believe in a soul. If, let's take some givens here, nature abhors a vacuum, okay? Now, when you die, your energy is neither created nor destroyed. 
So it's perfectly reasonable to me as nature recycles everything. You look at the rainforest, a branch falls down the tree, within 12 months it's been recycled back into another tree somewhere else. Why would not the same be of the packet of energy that is your soul, that is the, the very essence of who we are outside of a functioning biomechanical device, i.e. the body? The, the essence of being a person is that ability to stand outside yourself and realise that there are more things going on in the world than the physical can explain. And I'm a great believer, for example, that you know one of the great modern alternative type therapies is, is reflexology. Now, that's where they sort of massage your feet and balance parts of your body. I believe that's only come about since man decided to wear shoes and we put a, a layer of interruption between ourselves and the physical earth whereas if you when you're on holiday you should walk around barefoot the whole time on the beach and stuff and your body is naturally getting itself back in tune with its world that's where i think an awful lot of the errors of nature uh, can be corrected if you take man's input out of it to so take away your shoe we are then directly connected to the earth again take away the physical body you've still got your energy has to go somewhere why not into another life why shouldn't we be either reincarnated or, um, you know, when you go to a party sometimes or you're somewhere and you meet someone and you, it's like you've always known them but you've only just met. Why, why couldn't you have met that energy and see it in their eyes perhaps, you know, a hundred years ago when you were both coincided there as now? I mean, I know I'm sounding like a sort of hippie who's taken far too many flowers. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I do believe that there is more to the spirit uh, or the essence of being a person than the simple mechanics of, of chemical and electrical impulses. I believe there is a conscience, and I believe that conscience, that energy, that order, does not necessarily get destroyed at death. I think the physicality of our bodies goes, yes. But I, I don't have a need to think that I would particularly go on but in the absence of knowing, I have filled the gaps of a, of a particular night when I was ill, which I mentioned earlier about when I, I think I had the choice to live or die. I know that I made a choice to come back. I had made a choice. I was given that privilege. Or I had understood inherently that I could decide to let myself go, where I was very welcome, make no mistake. Uh, and in fact, it was a real effort to come back into the, in, into the world that we know and that we're in today. But I chose to come here. I'm not done here yet. In this guise, I am not done yet. What happens after? I don't know. Is there a God? Emphatically, no. Are there things that we don't necessarily understand? Yes. We look at the Higgs boson, we look at dark matter, and you know, the universe, in its wonderful simplicity and complexity, has always fascinated man, and so it should, because, you know, we used to believe the world was flat. Right. We used to believe all sorts of things, which manifestly are not so. Yeah. Um, and you know, what is time? You know, if you look at the distant stars, the light that we would see, or if they were looking in real time at us now, they'd see dinosaurs. Right. So to them, we're in a future that hasn't happened. But to us, that's in the past, it's already happened. So what is time? It's merely an in, 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 Inaccurate, inaccurate system whereby mm. we quantify the now and put it in a place in space. Well, also, it's, it's really interesting as well because people tend to think of those things, those kind of ex, 
those kind of discoveries, like the world being round or whatever, yeah. as being things that are in the past, we can't have any more of those. Like, and that's really not true. Like, mm. in the last like five years, I've been looking a lot at kind of the science behind gender and sex and, yeah. and these sorts of yeah, things. Yes, you've been doing and, your and, yeah. and you know when we look at chromosomes and things like this, it suggests completely different things than this binary idea of man and woman yeah. that we've had for for ages. I mean, we you know. There's three sexes, there's man, woman, and intersex, yep. but there's also, on a chromosomal level, it's not just X and Y that are the chromosomes that matter. They're so not the only determinants. There's a load of different determinants, yeah. and there's a load of different combinations, so six or more uh, sexes is, is how many that, that some scientists, and quite a lot of scientists, uh, seem to say. In fact, I would say that the, 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 the that is what the consensus is now, even but there, though it's now not the consensus seeing, in society. Yes, but you are seeing that shifting, and there are places where... Recognition of uh, male, female, or transgender yeah, is exactly. now recognised. Right. And, you know, and in our politically correct actually. LBGT world, right. the recognition that there are other, um, if you like, um, categories of life or, or of sex of experience you know, we're, we're dabbing enshrined in law so there are shifts happening well it's shift, it shifts and they shift back I mean we'll see what happens now We've this is a few the point is we're, we're all trying Trump to explain well so. I was going to say the, 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 the idea that the intelligent life is winning on earth is slightly sold by the argument lost right Donald Trump I cannot Indeed. understand how the leader of the free world supposedly I mean how the fuck did that happen I don't know man but he's like um, his background ridiculous. I mean it's not the same as yours but it's no but he's privileged and he's an it's operator it's a similar thing he's a he's a, a, a an upper class white man who inherited wealth you yeah. inherited some wealth but lost a lot of a lot more than you ever inherited I spent a lot more of other people's wealth right 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 I mean you're not on the same level as Donald Trump in terms of privilege and so no. you had uh, lower to fall than he would if he went on a similar trajectory but the, the, it's, he's still been bred with the same kind of expectation that this world is his to control to have yeah, to absolutely. own and, and, and we live in it and, and I've never reconciled myself to this at all is, is that if you look at you know, people measure success. Oh, he's done frightfully well. He's made an awful lot of money. Uh, you know, so people set up a company. They do something that nobody else is doing, or they come up with some new invention, or it's the, whatever. In order for that to be measured in any yardstick as a success, requires that we chase the profit and we chase more and more and more. All right. So we're in a world where more is good, and yet we use and build it on a finite number of reserves right. and resources. It, it's insane. It, it, you know, it does not add up. It does not compute. Right. In order to be successful, we actually have to create the destruction of ourselves. It, that is the very nature of what it is to be uh, a human being, as, as I decide, or as I can see it. In order to be a success, we have to overcome the natural order to such a degree that it destroys the very rock in which we live. It's insane. Why is that the case? Why does... The you know politics try to you know balance this argument, and we looked at different doctrines through the years, and the Marxists and the communist experiments. They don't work. They haven't worked. They're not going to work. Nothing that man constructs is going to work. Well, because you know. because we we were missing the one key element, which is we live in a finite, resourced little pocket. 
that and has to at be... some point we get to the end we I mean, get I think our hand in and there's going to be nothing in the kitty I think you're right I mean that has to be the fundamental thing that human beings have to face up to at this moment is the environmental destruction that we are wreaking by using yeah. up all of the resources but also there's the the human cost that these resources have as well it's not just an environmental cost that us consuming more and more has it's human cost as well and yeah. we're seeing that in wars and we're seeing that in exploitation in, in different well, countries I totally agree with you and the, especially when you look at the sort of war situation I mean a hundred years ago you, if you look at the stats a hundred years ago in war situations you would have casualties would be 97% military and 3% civilian now it's completely the opposite in fact the safest place to be in a war now is in the military because everybody else that dies today is, is a civilian in, in any war situation and if you look at the current sort of embroiled mess which is our legacy that we've created in the Middle East um, all, all driven through man's desire for oil and greed and whatever. We have the ability to eradicate AIDS. We have the stockpiles of weapons. We have the, the drugs. We could, as a people, as a, as, as a race, as, as, as an entity, we could change things to the nth degree. We don't. Why? Because somebody somewhere wants to make a profit in the meantime. Mm-hmm. That, that's the bottom line. That is the successful model of the world, is to find something and be able to charge for it. Right. And the thing is, the fundamental stuff, oil, that everybody you know, fights so many wars about, I, I already believe the alternative to oil is already there, but there are so many vested interests in, in, in keeping the old order going yeah. that, that nobody's going to come up and put their head over the parapet and say, well, actually, we don't need any of this. Because to, to not need it all then just completely negates everything that everybody's been working towards for so many years. And even on my own level, to admit that I was going down a blind alley again, I found incredibly difficult. So as a race, to admit right. that we're going wrong... Is, is, to admit is, that we're is, addicted to consumption. ...is, is, is, is yeah, magnified yeah, so yeah. many times and therefore the, 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 the solution is as further away than ever. Because the more people that we put into the mix the more the further away we're going to get from the real situation which is you know it's like getting an orange and putting some bacteria on it those bacteria are going to multiply until the orange is gone and then that population is going to die that is the human condition we are accelerating ourselves into our own destruction i know and patting ourselves on the back while we do it it's insane right that's the world we live in i don't like it no me neither i really don't and on my own I recognised that I was powerless to do anything about it, so what did I do? I decided to ring-fence myself from it through a cocoon of pharmaceuticals. Again, self-destructive. Yeah. Again, it's just an accelerated form. I mean, any addiction or, or compulsion will lead to despair and destruction. That's why I believe. And I, even knowing that, I will still embark on that journey. But also the process of getting better is also sometimes so hard that it kind of creates part of the problem. It's interesting, like, so we, we began this discussion with a kind of uh, a topic that I probably... I, I, I actually wasn't thinking of, of, of addressing at all, uh, we, we, but we ended up talking about kind of sexual abuse. Yep. And um, it's, not that, and it's not that I'm against talking about that at all, um, but I remember when we were putting together the solo show again, mm. like I remember we were talking about what we were going to include and you were like, well, I want to include this. And you told me your experience of sexual abuse. Yeah. And I was like, 
I do believe in these stories being told, and that's a really important story. However, we've only you got thought an that hour. wasn't the format to do it. Well, I thought we've only got an hour, and there's kind of so many other things we were talking yeah. about. We're talking about homelessness. We're talking about ch- we were talking about viol- like ch- some kinds of child abuse, uh, um, and it just felt like we would need to really, if we're going to bring that topic up, we needed to give it its due. This it, is almost is it's almost a whole thing in, in and of itself. And, I didn't, and, and again, I guess it's the thing that you said earlier on. You don't want to be defined by it. I didn't yeah. want that that story to be defined by that um, although I can totally see why a second show or whatever would maybe address that or maybe I mean it's a complicated thing to talk about on stage as well because you're going to trigger people's experience I've done this I, I mean I've I, stood on I stage totally get that, yeah. and I've done kind of content note before I've done my show and my show it doesn't involve uh, sexual abuse, but it does involve uh, a description of, of being raped. It does. Uh, exp- it does. How is that refer not to sexual abuse? Well, it, yeah, I guess it How is. How is that not? I guess it is, abuse? but it's by a, again, an adult to an again, adult. But again, I would know, argue, David. So you know, I want thing. to take you up on this. The, the very fact that you will couch that in terms that you find acceptable you don't want to admit that no, it's I know. abuse you see that's the it issue took me 20... we, are, we are people that have experienced it Mate, and we still don't want I, to I did it 23 times consecutively in Edinburgh and it was right. only on the last day but one I think that I could actually say to my friend Liz right. that I was a survivor of, of, that's, of rape that's like I've point. never been able to use that sentence about myself I never right. felt like I could use the word victim or survivor because I didn't yeah. feel like I had a right to them so I totally thank you, I that, totally you, see you, all that. you that, that's my point is, is that and if you and I just on a, on a humanist one on one level right. are struggling to own exactly. that collectively the denial wall is so big yeah we're never going to get on top of it. And that's the thing. So I remember that time when you were getting sick yeah. was also when you really couldn't not tell that story. Exactly. I remember coming and I think you told it on stage at Brixton and I remember that, that happening. And I think it was a good... You told it well. It was diff, a, a difficult thing. It's always difficult to yeah. hear your friends talking about sad things that yeah. happened to them. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important for survivors and, and, and victims to tell our stories, to say, like, you know, it's for it not to be hidden. Like yeah. that's half the, the, the war is to, it, to, to get it out bring it out open. into the open exactly let but, the lights look at it let it wither in, in the real light but it's interesting to me that just as you started to become a you returned to using just yeah. as you were telling that story yes. just as you like what were you in your 50s and you were admitting that you'd been abu- like abu- sexually abused yes. and the pain of that must have had some con- contribution it can't yes it can't like, not have added to the mix right, back in the day exactly it's not the only reason there's never one yeah. there's never a smoking gun for life yeah. it's always so many different things yeah. but I agree with that and yet and, and also the, 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 my need to own it or recognise it because it, it it doesn't validate the story but, but it, uh, let me give you an example I mean obviously because of the nature of the beast I've been involved with social services and the, and the sort of uh, and I'm again back in the mix of the substance misuse team and the people that have to control or, or address um, active addiction within the community. Um, I'm very lucky in, in that I um, um, have got those resources to hand if I choose to access them, which I am now doing again. But because I've got history with the people, i.e. the funders of the, of the substance use team in, in the borough that I live in, um, although there's been this huge gap where I've not been, you know, where I was abstinent and, and by all yardsticks, cracking on with my life, I find it absolutely remarkable that my key worker then, who's uh, agreed to take me forward again in this journey, has always kept the first page of my notes about me on her case study. The first page has been left blank. 
and it's been left blank for 20 years in the time that she's been interviewing and she's left it blank because she always felt that there was this something that I didn't bring to the table she never knew what it was she suspected but it wasn't going to be her that was going to broach it it had to come from me and she's waited 20 years to hear me go actually when I was little this happened and as you say not necessarily a smoking gun but the very nature of what happens and how I learnt to deal with that undealable situation was was so much the best friends of addiction where I learned to hide where I learned to you know I learned and I find it incredibly difficult to forgive myself for not speaking out sooner although instinctively I knew I wouldn't have been believed or I would have been told it didn't happen or I'm making it up yeah um well, I think as a man, it's a complicated and thing. And then as a man, admit to admit stuff. that you yeah. learned how to make it less painful. You learned how to make it go easy for you. I, I, there's a part of me that, um, you know, I find it really odd that, that, that I, I learned how to make my abuser happy. Up but that survival, that is again, it is. Yeah, it is. We all we all do it in whatever way. Like like I've I you know in my life I've found ways to appease people who were abusing me so that I didn't uh, yeah. get worse abuse. I mean, yes. not the same kind of abuse, but definitely. Like, they did. You don't have any yardstick to measure that. Like I don't think. I don't think you can. I don't think you can quantify it in terms of degrees. I mean, pain is pain. But that's the thing. You yeah. it's, it's that betrayal of like when you do the thing that makes it easier for you. It is betraying myself. Yes, you. you, yes. you, you I go, feel. You, thank you. Right. That's my point. Is I had to betray my own right. self in order to survive. Yeah, and I can't. It's not really about the other person. Right. It's about that that's part of me. Thing. That's the self abnegation. The, the self hatred. That's the root of the the conflict, if you like. Of of. I don't really know who I am. I know what I do in certain situations, and I might glibly say. I've always relied on a fast mouth and even fast legs to get me out of trouble, you know. Right. And I'm mouthy. I mean, I've you've got, got all them lines. Like you've got all and of, of these course that, funny, slimy. And it is funny. It's accessible. Of, yeah. But at the same time, it alienates me from any real human contact with it. Well, that's I can see that. It. I mean, you. you I'm know, sitting here saying it, actually, sort of feeling rather stupid. Well, I mean, you've got like oh, that's you know you're. Your identity is based very much around kind of um, heterosexuality as well, and like being a very successful ladies' man in inverted commas, um, which is moderately you, successful. You know, well, I, I would say you know. I'm not saying I am always right. I, I, I just, I've just you know, never been wrong yet. Well, I think you have been very successful in uh, in in many people's terms. I've had more Whatever than ever. Whatever success yeah, means, yeah. I mean, you're as we're talking, it's more complicated than that. Like, success is not... Like, we see people and we think, oh, they're this kind of person because they're doing this. We don't know why they're doing it. You know, we don't know why... Yes, why, yeah, why do I do it? And a lot of it is, is, is a, an almost... Um, essential part of my psyche right. that shores me up against the hideous reality of, of what it is to feel terrified and tired and hating 
and not having anywhere to go, nowhere to turn. Well, sex is a drug too, and sex is a way of like escaping uh, your your world. Yeah. And and and, and uh, I I I feel very much like that about my sexuality. That one of the things that I I recognise is that I'm trying to like I I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, and I I, I think everyone's mileage varies on addiction, but um, but I definitely find that with sex and with drugs, like what appeals to me about those things is not being myself for a bit, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's being able to transcend, overcome self. In the moment, oh. you're in the moment, you're just a body, you're just physical, all of these things. But, I mean, it's complicated, you know, by this by this experience that you, uh, you know, addressed yeah. at the start, that, that, that sex isn't always a positive thing for everyone. There's so many complications within sex. Well, that's the thing, and of course, then you've got to look at the other drivers. Of course, you know, on a, on a very uh, to oversimplify it, you know, women will use uh, sex in order to get love, and men will use love in order to get sex. That's well, kind of that's kind of where an awful lot of the conflict in in, in love. That's the binary that we're sold. Know? Yeah, I but, agree. Okay, maybe it in is that, the binary in that, that we're sold. in those terms. Yeah. But in terms of um, if your end game is to conquer or to win and I think sexual conquest is all about uh, that power it's about, it, it is yeah. it's about power when you have lived um, and survived in a position of powerlessness mm. in that arena then I guess it is actually even, you know, even as we're speaking I'm actually I'm feeling a certain sense of discomfort around the fact that I I would adamantly say to anyone that I have not become the abuser, and yet I do abuse my ability to pull, if you like, or whatever, my my charm ability effect. There's different kinds of abuse, though. But I don't think I'm. Yeah, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm malicious. You know, I've never. I was just say promising to someone a little bit too much in a smile is yeah. not the same. It's thing. not the same as tying them up and beating them. Indeed, and inserting foreign Indeed. for your gratification. I agree. But there is a certain amount of hypocrisy in everything I say. Well, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy in the human condition. And, you know, for us to have some love and some empathy for ourselves as people, I think we do need to just, like, forgive ourselves the hypocrisy, forgive ourselves some of these things. Not not in a way that means that we condone it, not that we go... Well, that, I think, is, you know, you, 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 there is forgiveness and there's condoning. There is making it OK... And making it acceptable or making it uh, becoming, uh, shall we say, reconciling oneself to a behavioural type or, or behavioural set of, uh, of uh, oh God, I can't even think of the word, rules, really. You know, a behavioural set, set, set of hoops to go through. Right. If you knowingly take somebody through a hoop on a promise that you know you're not going to fulfil. That is abuse. It you is. Know, I mean, resentment always, you know, in life is born out of an unfulfilled expectation. And I've always, particularly crack dealers, I find, you know, they, they, they always say they're going to be 10 minutes because they don't want you to go anywhere else. They might be in Birmingham when they say that. And right. the point is, is that if you under-promise and over-deliver, that's the way to, to win in the world. Because if I think I'm going to be three hours... I'm going to say to you, uh, I think I'll be four hours, so that when I come in at three hours, you're going to think, hey, 
where that's good I'm special he's made an effort whereas if I said to you I'm going to be two hours and I came in at three hours you're going to be pissed off because I've made you wait yeah now it's the same time but there's a certain element but it's how you present it it's how you sell it I agree with that but there's a certain element that's also about like remembering that other people have agency in these situations the women yeah they have free free will the women that you're smiling at and promising maybe more than you're going to deliver to they they know they live in the world like many of them will be well aware of what they're getting into I feel like you're not someone who makes it that unclear what you're getting into no I mean it's not as if my agenda is that well hidden it's pretty clear what you're getting into and a lot of women have wanted to actively get into that at first what is it the founder of Spark says she could describe me she said you're like an exocet missile <laughs> she says you're like a heat seeking missile she said I watch you ding 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 and she says it's like oh. and she laughs she thinks it's funny well it is funny and it's sad and it's also sexy for some it's people very effective uh, like you know it's, it's, it is it's a thing that it is you know like it's many things it's from uh, ten different perspectives in the room it will be a different thing you know yeah. but I mean I don't think it is equatable to, to, to sexual abuse no and, and, and that's and going to an extreme I don't I don't wear it I like believe that. we do need to see ourselves as a con- on a continuum and yeah. a lot of my work's been about that been about saying to men yeah, you might not be a rapist, you might not be a this or that, but you're part of a culture that, that, that says it's okay. It, it does, and, yeah, and, I agree. And, and, and that, is that's true. how we've ended up with Trump. And it is true, we need to work on that. But at the same time, working on that is not the same thing as as, as blaming ourselves for the worst things in society. And yeah. also guilt is not something that you can... It's not a constructive emotion, as no, you know. It's valueless. It, and, and guilt never makes you actually stop... Like, rarely, I've found... Shame, shame know, will... Right, shame may make guilt you stop. is guilt is an emotion that you experience from a perspective of what others must how others must see you. Shame comes from a perspective of how you see you. Right, okay. I think I've always been interested in the in the definition me, between those two things. I kind of use them interchangeably, but I also do understand they're that they're different feelings. They are not interchangeable. I mean, I think I've got a bit of both these days. I used to say I only had guilt, but I think I've got a bit. Of no, both I see. Well, I mean, I may be wrong, but it, it's the way I explain <laughs> it to people. Guilt is about how I experience something, or I imagine what other people see me, and shame is about what I see. So, shame for me is the most powerful one. Right. When I experience that toxic level of exposure, I cannot deal. How you see me, I don't really give a fuck. Bottom line, I don't really care. No, no, sure. Not really. But when it comes down to it, it's how I see me that will change the way I do things. Right. That's incredibly self-centred. But that's true as well. It's very true for a lot of people, I think. For me, uh, probably for me too, I think. Well, it may be. I'm not not here to... I I mean, that's the problem with trying to change... Make you wear a jacket that isn't yours, but I certainly know the jackets I wear. Well, the thing is, trying to change people's minds, that's often the problem. That really, the process has to be a personal one. Uh, You can lead people places. You can can offer them things. They have to make a choice. They have to come with you. Yes. They have to make the decision to change uh, the way they think about themselves. And a lot of people don't want to change. No. I'm resistant. <laughs> I, I recognise the need. Yeah. You know, I am physically very, very debilitated. I'm very unwell. You have to change and at this I, point. I, I have a, an imperative. I mean, when I was making us tea, you had you said you know, five five sugars because I need to put on weight. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, yeah. that's true. I mean, you do you do what a, a unique position to be in, I guess. Of, of well, not many middle-aged people yeah, have the problem yeah, of, of, of putting it on. Mostly, yeah. trying to get it off. Right, yeah, and of course. When you saw me 
just before I, I got really sick and was hospitalised, you know, I was this huge... And you mentioned, it's quite interesting, you mentioned how I've somehow seemed to shrink in height. So the position I held in your psyche, the way you perceive me, is as slightly larger than life, should we say. Right. And you're in a very good position, because we know each other quite well, and yet we've had this perspective of, of a gap with all sorts that's gone on which was kind of kind of getting you up to speed if you like as a, as a mate of, of you know what's happened in, in, in Rad's world <laughs> right <coughs> excuse me over the last year or two I, I, I appear diminished in your eyes no I mean but yes there is a part no. there is like part, physically yeah, no. you are but yeah. like and it was like seeing a kind of a ghost or a shadow of, of someone I used to know and like reconnect recalibrating my eyes and my understanding that this new body that's in front of me is the same person it's the same guy that's good but, but, but recalibration once, I like once I'd done that and hopefully I did that in a way that was kind of not going oh my god like I hopefully did it in a yeah you were cool way. you were very cool about it but, 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 I could but, see you were shocked when but, I turned but, up well, in, in the hackney you know it's, it, it was it was a, a shock but I but you know, you're not diminished. In my, you're, you're you're still the same person to me, with the same. You know, I don't think of you as a lesser human being or anything. Like and I it. think that is where I sometimes get lost because I probably believe that people do see me as less, and I don't want to appear. That. Well, maybe some people That's do. So it's a very complicated way that people yeah. see people. I'm not I saying mean. that you should hide though, as well, because the other thing is people who didn't know you before don't know. No. When they meet you, they they just they don't know you look like no. David Bowie. They I, might which think, I, which you know, I'm loving. I do get it a lot. So and you like David Bowie. You know, you, you've got a, you know you've yes, got a very true. different kind of look than you used to have. But it's it's a it's 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 one that a lot of people would still like. I think. Well, even without teeth, I seem to be you know doing quite well. Half of them gone. Right, that is you know more of an issue. But you know that can be dealt with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But you've got to get through now before you worry about yourself. And that is the thing, David. Is in now, my now is bottom line is it's intolerable without taking something. I can't cope with my now. That's the real sadness. <sighs> yeah. you know, I am in the grip again, not in a hopeless place, not in a this is it, this is all I am. I don't really believe that. But in order to really build a foundation that I can comfortable in again I have to kind of deconstruct some of the the bullshit mystique I build around myself you know? right because you are a myth maker yeah. I understand that and I have a very difficult time because I'm lucky enough that people I sort of one of my great enemies is collusion in that people want to collude with me they, they sort of they enjoy you know the, the right. myth you know it's quite a beguiling you know, there's a part of me that recognises that people sort of... I don't know, it sounds arrogant, I don't mean it to be, but there's a certain cachet, if you like. Of, well, it's a little bit like know. women being interested in you because you have these certain kind of qualities that you've had. Everyone's interested in you for some qualities you've got, and it is enjoyable to spend time with a raconteur who is making funny jokes, who has, yeah. has lots of life experience to draw on, so it feels very authentic authentic but it is and it is yeah. but one of the things I like about sitting down with you and having these kind of conversations and I remember this from the first ever time we had this conversation is that that there is this performance you do 
of your life, which is genuine and authentic. There is truth in it, yes. and it is accepting of your flaws, and it is open, and all of these things that I love yeah. about your storytelling, but it's still an act. And that when we did this conversation the first time, I remember there was a kind of a moment where you talked about being homeless in a different way than you'd ever talked before. And it was to do with the light coming in to the room and you had this very specific memory. And like... The dust motes. Right. And and that broke through something. Like you, you kind of said things in a in a way that I could really I felt like we really or I saw you you know I know really, I came really out from authentic. behind the persona right in, 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 actually you and I are really good I find I, I love talking with you <laughs> because one because you listen but two also that you're aware of the games and the stratagems and you're not fooled by them and yet you can enjoy them for what they are at the same time right right does that make sense <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. sort of oh that's Rand doing his thing you know um, which I kind of think everybody kind of knows, but they sort of enjoy it because I've become a character of myself. Yeah. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think there are people I don't allow to see beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you, you know, I have a huge issue around trust. Yeah, for and reasons which incredibly probably, understandable. Uh, I was to going to say most listening. people would probably kind of get because of the nature of where I come from or the, my life journey, and I recognise that I have. A real problem with trust, yeah. And I resent, I resent people who feel they have an ownership or a right. And one of the things I really have always admired about about you and the way that you um, interact with the world, if you like, and I've heard you telling your stories, is I envy you your ability to not need to win. You have an interesting. Well, you may not recognize. No, I I kind of think that's interesting. You kind of don't need to win, whereas I still feel I need to win. Yeah, but then I I I I admire and kind of envy kind of uh, your ability to sort of uh, phrase things in a immediate way and come up with like great comebacks and all these things that you have, Uh, whereas I sometimes find myself kind of lost like I can't remember a word or whatever on stage but that's you see now that the irony of that is and I watch you our styles are very different and what's <laughs> interesting is we both do the same job yeah. you know, the same organisation right, right, right. in, in, in different arenas but it's yeah, the same yeah, gift absolutely. and the way you do it and the way I do it are so very different yeah. and yet entirely non-conflicting and yeah, absolutely. I think well, I think all of the hosts spark we all bring something yeah do it differently some completely. of our own essence to yeah, it and I think absolutely. it works for that and, and it's, it's one of the things that you do is you I don't mean this to sound rude or derogatory no, no, no. in any way but you do sort of bumbling intellect <laughs> really really well and okay. some of the stories I've heard you do I mean one of the funniest stories I've ever heard at Spark was you oh, the one that got away the one that got away you know the story uh, we don't need to go into it now but that and not only you talk about uh, authenticity or, or, or integrity, if you like. Right. I don't think I necessarily compromise my integrity or authenticity by playing up to the role or the, or the, or the, or no, the game don't. because I people know it's me doing that. I don't think you do. It's in fact it no. demonstrates your story when you do that because it's those very that gift of the gab, the way you use yeah. words. It's why you why all of those things happen. Yeah, it's because exactly that. Like we, you know, I love the. It was an awful, awful time, and I was at a very smart dinner party, a rather large dinner party. It was like a lot of old Northumberlands all getting together. 
And I'd been chatting up some girl before dinner, and obviously she found me more entertaining than her boyfriend. And he was nose was slightly out of joint. Fair enough. Um, anyway, at the end of the first course, down this long table, he sort of shouted down the table. He said, "I say, Ratcliffe, I hear you've been to jail. What for?" And the whole table sort of shoom, silence, and awkward. And I just looked up at him in a very quiet voice. I said, "Which time?" <laughs> and he just completely folded. He suddenly thought, "Oh my God, this is a hardened villain." And the girl sitting next to me sort of squeezed my leg. So I was so cool. You completely rinsed him. But he tried to shame me. Yeah. And that ability to have the right comeback at the right time right you'll feel shame yourself but if anyone tries to shame you you Ooh, will push I, them back anyone who wants fuck to fuck you up yeah yeah and you will regret it yeah and I do it's a mind defence um, to his credit I would like to add to his credit he did apologise and he came up to me and he said I'm so terribly sorry he said that was really cheap and really uncalled for and I really respected him for that and we parted as friends well, I'm just going to pause it again while I roll my like, final cigarette, and then uh, and then we'll come back in for the end of the show. Yeah, I love all that stuff. So we've been kind of reminiscing when I turned off the mic about the one that got away. I think I feel like we should probably explain what happened there because it's not clear to listeners now. I think it's not clear to me. So I mean, yeah. I I went on stage and told a story at Brixton about my kind of relationship with sport and uh, with being bullied and rugby and and. and Basically, I just got up and uh, attacked uh, sports and uh, sporting pursuits, but hopefully in a human way that kind of actually didn't condemn other people's. Well, also you were doing it. Well, I was quite in, angry. In, you were doing way. it. You were doing it in the run-up to the, the UK Olympics. I mean, it, it was incredibly. Right, it, was, it was a night about sports. And I got up and, and said, "You, you it, are." Yeah. For those that don't know Dave personally, you, you, you don't immediately come across as a natural athlete. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you've got. Um, You've got a very cool look going on, but it's much more sort of, you know, 70s hippie than than, than, right. than, than track star. But it was it was definitely a good story. Like, I, I you just the, told it so the well. The room loved it. Yeah. But what happened is I had not pressed record for me, so I, I, I can't listen back to it and see what it was like. And I can't share it with you listeners. And I can't share it with you. I just know I was there. Yeah. And it was a happening. Sometimes the best... And it was one of those like moments, that, for some reason... You can never regret You were it. completely over... You, there was no construct of self getting in between the audience and the story. Yeah, and, and, and then, To explain what that means, we all have... Well, certainly in my own experience, I have a way of attaching to my narrative where I can hide. Um, and I don't... You know, I can detach from the emotional content or the emotional load of the story. Uh, you have a very different technique where you can put that emotional load, you, your vulnerability is palpable. Right. And it, it's almost painful. It's very acute. Yeah. And yet, it's, it, it, it's not artifice. There is a sort of genuine self-deprecation and humour, if you like, at your own foibles or your own, you know lack of machismo whatever you want to call it which is so intoxicating and I remember that night I mean every girl in the place just wanted to take you home and and, you know you're talking yeah I guess that's it was that sort of it was that sort of thing but I I just remember you were like a rock star to me it was like going to see the Sex Pistols for the first time or the Clash you know I (laughs) saw those bands it was life changing it was just I'd never seen you Completely at ease on stage, 
And you were. You were yeah. totally, you'd had the right supper or the right, right. cocktail, whatever it was. <laughs> you were just so present, so now. And everybody was, and I like, um, at the Brixton night, and, and I think uh, the girl that took over from me, Charlie, yeah. she's got her own style. But again, very similarly, she's very in your face. Right. She's very open. She's very up there. Um, and helps engender a, a space where people do feel safe to come forward. And I think that's our role, is, is to create a, a comfortable enough arena for that people can take the risk. Right. Um, and there are, uh, there's nothing I like more than watching, and it, you've seen it and I've seen it many times, someone who's never actually got up on, in front of anybody else and spoken. And some people, without any training or without any whatever, just have an ability to be so themselves that it's impossible not to walk to them. Right. And you have that quality. And that is something I envy, I think, because I rely on artifice. Well, and I, you don't. You know, I don't know about that. I, I wouldn't but that's how it came across. Con- you know, that's probably I think there is an artifice element to what you do, and you do come back to your lines that you have, that yeah. you know, I'll use this line and that'll get this effect. Mm. So in some ways you're like a comedian like that. You kind of I do, up, yeah, you know, I employ... Some what, what are called stand-up techniques. I do do. But that. in between those moments that you know are going to hit, you do get vulnerable. I think and, and authentic. Yeah, I think I do. Yes, I don't think I do it to the exclusion of me. I just think there are times when it, it's just expedient and it just it sort of, sort of rolls it along a bit, you know. And it's kind of a shorthand. And there's also a very aware part of me always when I'm on stage. It's one of the things I'm lucky. About. I don't freeze on stage. No, I am you completely don't, yeah. in my element. Right. I don't get frightened. I don't feel that sort of exposure thing. I know. I have the confidence now and the experience to know I can hold a room, and I can take people with me. And once you have that, and you can think quickly, which I can, I find it just such an empowering place to be because it's almost in what you don't say. And what's implied, and I will use people's own prejudice. I'll let them judge me in a way, and then I'll surprise them by being not like that or whatever. You know, yeah. and I have that ability. I can see myself doing it. I am able, almost, to sort of, if you like, self-edit in the moment. It's, it's a, not a, not everyone can do it because some people find it just I've got to get through this, and they're kind of rabbit in the headlights and then just blurt it out. Yeah. Whereas I am much more. Calculated. But you have a moment when you can stand on stage and take control of your own story. And I think that that's what makes true storytelling incredibly powerful and, and socially valuable mm. and all of these things is that people get to it's tell their own story. Yeah. They take socially it, valuable. And I think each person's own story. Own yeah. And I, that's what I think is the great thing about Spark. It, I really do. Because, and we're all different, and we occasionally, we, we pretty regularly get together because the team's fairly... Disparate. We don't have an office, and we don't all get you know. No, we, and it's volunteers, and it's volunteers, and people helping people crisscrossing, and sometimes you can make it, sometimes you can't, and we all kind of can fill in or not. Um, and yet, there is a core, there is a core ethos of. Um, I think it's service, actually. I think it's of service to the to the to the ideal, which is to create a space where we allow true stories. We give them the oxygen, and they they you know people. I think people probably do in, in sort of half like a group therapy or you know they can come to terms with stuff I mean I've watched it so many times and 
I'm always struck by there was a I think he was a New Zealander or Australian very tall chap Alan Giraud yeah, yeah, he's Catch me if you can. I think you might have interviewed him, I don't know. Uh, but he came to me, um, I caught him, he came to Despark with me for the first time. And he told this unbelievably touching story about the poor kid from the wrong side of the tracks right, he's got going to the school story. prom. Yeah. And it's a really simple story with no big, there's no guns and drugs no, and rock and roll it's stars. It's an incredibly, but it stays with me, that story, it's to this day. Yeah, me too. And that was probably six years ago. Yeah. And and yet, and I didn't particularly warm to him as a man. I, I've since got that, but when I first heard it, I just was totally listening to the story. Yes. And I was, you know, he's, I've since learned he has developed and he's gone on and done his own show and I'm really pleased to hear that. I'm in touch with him now. Yeah. Um, but I just remember that it was so wonderful because unlike me, who's sort of relied on surviving really quite sort of headline type events if you like right. his was totally not, not it was, there was no rock and roll in it no, at no, all no no the stakes were so low but they were Thank because you. they were a child's stakes uh, but and they were about he, love of his dad and not having they, not having a father there not having and all these there, and it was so anyone I did, I, you don't need to be a parent but he was I was so touched by that and he's really and there are a few that you'll you'll tell that the the one that got away night <laughs> and again what what I remember is is actually it was like the orange warmth of the collective was just there yeah. and you just caught the moment yeah and you were there yeah and everyone was there with you it was, it was everybody's story it rather was, than mine in that moment and that, I, I think that's it, the resonance was we all recognised ourselves that's what was so touching. That was probably the power of it. Right. Whereas I might be, you know, I've got a few slick lines and I've got a few slick links which I know kind of work, but then it's that it, 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 there's no authenticity in them, not really. Uh, it's artifice. I don't know. I'm not but gonna, I'm but, not but, but I use those to get to a place where I can then. Yeah, okay, I'll accept that. And I think that's, I'm not totally, you know, but not being self-deprecating here. I'm, I'm just, I think I can use those, if you like, comfortable techniques for want of a better word to get to a place where I can then just wow yeah that's him well, I've, I've there, never I've never been to a storytelling night where I haven't been kind of touched by a story that has stayed with me yeah. like I, every single month I think you know this will be the month where there won't be amazing stories and every single month there is amazing stories it always comes it's guaranteed and it, during the Brixton nights I, I mean there are times when um you know, and we've kind of often sort of been plotted up in the audience and helped each other out. So well, I'm pretty, I'm here if we need. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I find part of the started. part of the risk of, yeah. of, of the, that I enjoy, certainly in the Brixton one, is you know we start the night. There is nobody. Right. There's nothing. There is no I know, show. I know. It's, it's me for two hours. Or, or it's nerve wracking you know, in some it, ways. It is terrifying in yeah. some respects because you've got nobody, and then to make that first announcement and say, all right, this is why we're here, guys. This is what we do to getting these people up there without prepping them, without rehearsals, without right, run-throughs. Right, right. And it works. And that, when that happens, and I, it just, to me, I, you know, I've always felt a huge sense of, you know, it's triumph you know, for the team, I guess, or whatever, that we've, yeah, a certain amount of ego, I like to think, you know, I've had a hand in it. But making it okay for people to come forward and be that revealing. Is, is its own reward because you know you do get those nuggets that stay with you yeah. and I know you know I've never, I will never never um, 
and this, and the, you know, there are some things that have happened at Spark or and spin-off shows that we've been invited to or done because of it. You know, there's never one. I've never gone away from one thinking, God, that was a waste of my time. Right. Ever. Right. And they haven't always been in an Alan story again. You know, it was that celebration of of just the little mundane, right. non-headline stuff, but told so simply and elegantly. You know, it. it uh, it surprises me even now when I'm thinking, it's just reminiscing. You know, he was doing he did, he did one of your stand up tragedy nights. Yeah, and did. I think we were in the Dog Star at Brixton where you occasionally right. do your shows. Watch out for them; they're always good, especially if I'm in them. Um, but he did that tell there, and I just I remember thinking, wow, if I could only have that simple, dare to be that simple, and I know I can't be. But your life has not been simple. So you are only you have only got the things you can work with that you've got. Your, yeah. your is, yours is a complicated life with headlines all over it. Like there's a, amazing headlines that you can find from any part of your life. Yeah. So of course you've worked with that as a storyteller. But I think it's been authentic in many many ways. Um, I remember once you interviewed me in a greenhouse. <coughs> that is right. That was the, th- the the third kind of episode of of Get America Acquainted. You were on the first two. Were, the same kind of conversation, two parts, and then yeah, I had you back on. I interviewed you in a greenhouse. We talked about kind of your life on the stock exchange, that kind of area oh of your God, life, yes. and that was great. And uh, the audience were really into that. That was a great kind of. I remember it. It was a, just such a bizarre thing. It was so it was Dave, in my head. It was such a Dave thing. It do. was a Dave thing. It was such a Dave thing. A greenhouse in the middle of. I know. Place okay. nowhere. I did five nights there. in that greenhouse yeah. with different people each night, and it was a very strange week, but a very good one. I mean, yeah. uh, those those are all great conversations. People should listen back to them. No, no, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I think they're all. Um, I mean, you know, I I would admit to I go listen sometimes. Well, I don't feel good. comfortable hearing my own voice yet. I really don't. I always think I sound like such a knob. That's really, really interesting because you really don't laid, laid down your voice in so many places. I know. Yeah, I know. and yet when I do, and I secretly, you know, on my own, sometimes I, and I'm my own, you know, I critique so harshly. About, but um, I'm very glad to have the canon, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds very grand. It's not, you know, but um, you know, to have that, if you like. Um, Record of some of my experiences yeah. is, I suppose, gives me the the comfort, or if you like, the the you know, this is a real, you know, I'm I'm right on the cusp in my life, you know, just in in my real world in life, you know, outside of anything that's going to be podcasted or anyone somebody listening to this any six months from now, um, you know, I am at a stage in my life where I have real life changing choices to make. And I, you know, it is real. It, it's scary, and you know, I guess I'm, I'm not confident that I'm up to the task of again readmitting and reconfirming myself on the light side of life. You know, I've, I've got myself into a very dark corner. You know, I, I am drug dependent again, and so much of my psyche and persona in, in the little world of our spoken word. Is about having survived that and come away from it. Yeah. So to find myself back in it, does that negate everything I've ever said? No. It does not. But it makes me feel very, almost like a fraud. Well, you're not, and I don't think you are. And I have, I think that the things you've shared, whatever happens to you now, the things that you've shared will still have touched other people and had an effect on those people and been useful. Like, 
The yeah. hope in a positive. Well, way. one of the things that true storytelling allows us is to hear other people's mistakes and learn from them without doing them. Yes. And you yes. certainly provided so many mistakes. Well, in that case, for I, people I, yeah. to learn from. Like I mean that, like in a like a in pocket a guide, a pocket guide to life skills. Yes, how not to do. And I know things are hard now, and anything I can do, as you know, you know, off when I'm not holding a microphone, I'm still here for you. You, you can ring me up. I don't do everything on mic, and I'm always very, uh, you know, I care about you, and anything I can do, uh, let me know. No, I get that, and I've always, I've, you know, we are unlikely bedfellows, as it were. You know, <laughs> we wouldn't know necessarily. We're not natural friends. No, but you don't sense. choose who comes into your life. But they just exactly. come into your life, and yeah. then they're there. And I'm very glad that you life. are in my. You know, I, I, I've, I've never not enjoyed your company, and <laughs> you know, you are the feeling is mutual. Well, you're bright. You know, you're an intelligent man, and you have a very different perspective, no less valid than mine. But it's rather fun seeing our, you know, our different journeys and yeah. where we touch and what is again, the 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 great thing about getting better acquainted or, or spark or any of these things where you take the time to give to give a, a landscape where it's safe for someone to just this is who I am this is what happened to me you know that is um, that's a powerful that's a powerful pocket of of truth which which I think you know so many people in life don't get whether it be at home they don't dare be honest with their family or right. their peers their wives or their children or whatever you know different Levels. I've got no investment in the outcome of this, right? And therefore, I am free to be real, right? You know, that's that's the joy of it. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be. Well, you can judge by as much as you like, and you know, bring it on. No one will ever judge me as harshly as I judge myself. Indeed, that is, and that's something that people don't always understand. I think about about many people that they're busy judging themselves like everyone's busy we're all very quick to condemn (coughs) other people (coughs) and sometimes you know those people are judging themselves and condemning themselves and they don't actually necessarily need an extra condemnation at that moment in their lives but yeah thank you so much for this I mean it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you and we've been to some difficult places and and you've you know I hope it's been a positive experience overall for you Um, that, it's been that, really nice to, 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 to sit and hang again. Yeah, it's good. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's well, the catchphrase I say at this point in the show is it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, but it feels weird to say that often when I'm saying it to people who've just divulged complicated experiences. It has been a pleasure to be a human in this room with you, but I haven't uh, felt pleasurable about many of those things we've been talking about. They've been made, you know, I've not, I'm not like, yeah, this is great. It's great that you've had terrible experiences. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's Let me really you know, enjoy your fucking right, shit. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. something that, you, you know, has to be addressed and worried about and thought about by people who are doing stuff like I am yes you know we have to address how much why do we want to know that stuff and why are we asking and prodding is it right but I mean hopefully it's been a positive experience I felt like it has been Um, the last question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug Uh, as we speak do you know what I don't for once in my life um, I'm not trying to sell something um, I would just sign off with I am being encouraged to and uh, have a desire to actually get some of this down in the written word. So I would like you to uh, tell your listeners, watch this space, 
if he ever comes out in print, please go and buy it. Buy his books. <laughs> buy the book. But it hasn't books. happened yet. He needs the money. For but I do. Book. I need the money. Yeah. <laughs> but I am thinking of getting it all down. Right. And because, um, as you say, you know, there's been, and we've had the privilege of doing this several times, and it, it, it occurs to me that it's probably a good idea for myself, let alone it might help others, which it might. You know. My my life experience is such that I wouldn't wish it on people, but I'm delighted to be able to at least have found uh, one avenue where all the horrible things that have happened actually can have some good, some good outcome, which is if, as you mentioned earlier, if if the joy of storytelling or being part of it is that you can make people's mistakes for them so that they don't have to go and do it <laughs> uh-huh. then that's got to be a good thing yeah um, I mean if anyone is in trouble and has problems around these areas get hold of Dave get hold of me I'll, I'll talk to you anytime yeah and always remember this too if you see somebody homeless remember they probably didn't plan it absolutely that's a very good thing to just uh, remember remind that. people yeah. Especially this time of year. And particularly this time of, of history. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, now is actually where people are more marginalised than ever. Nobody sets out to be a homeless person. Nobody sets out to be a derelict. We often can get there through our own actions, but they're not necessarily deliberate. They are the outcome of many years of conditioning or erroneous beliefs which needs to be challenged sometimes and for me I'm back into a place where I'm re-challenging who I am and what I do in life I'm happy to uh, happy to say that I'm still alive and I still have a, a hunger to be complete in some way and I don't yet feel that maybe writing about it maybe getting it down is something at least it's something to focus on it's something bigger than yourself to yep. focus on which may not be God but Hey, you know, whatever, whatever we can grab uh, to get ourselves through. I'm not going to um, mock people who use God to get out of their situation. If he works for you, yeah. great. But okay. if you can't, why not write about your life instead? And listeners also, I'm sure people will be like, you never asked the second question, which is, what do you do now? Well, I, I feel like the, the answer to that question is embedded in this entire conversation, and there's no real reason to ask that question. If, yeah, if people are asking, you know, how do I feel that awkward gap between school and retirement? This is it. <laughs> Talk about me. <laughs> and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, for anyone that has... Um, stayed on the journey this far thank you so much for your attention I hope uh, I hope you found something positive in what I've been saying I certainly feel um, very comfortable and I'm very relaxed and I don't feel I've said anything I didn't wish to say and if I've said anything that is hard for you to hear then hopefully that's uh, that's a little warning bell that there's an area in your own life that you, you, you may be able to get some closure or, or, or some resolution to. I certainly hope to find some in mine. And doing this, you know what? It's a privilege. Thank you for being there. Bye everybody. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook 
www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>